0: So, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke 18, where this morning we'll be considering the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I appreciate the opportunity to open the Word of God with you this morning, and uh, for so many people that look like they're wide awake for being time change morning. And we want to be sure to remember Cord as he is ministering up in Dayton this morning. And with that in mind, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Our dear Father, it is our greatest privilege and honor to worship you. And Father, you have blessed us with your word that you have provided for us. And Father, we pray that as we look at these words of the Lord Jesus that we would learn from this parable more of the marvels of your grace and what it means to walk in your grace. Father, bless our time here. May your Holy Spirit be among us, and may you open our eyes and our hearts to understand and to grow in the things of you. Father, we do pray for Court as he is ministering this morning, perhaps speaking even now, that you would be with him and that you would use him And that you would, through your Holy Spirit, again, work there and among those folks. And Father, may your name be honored and glorified. And not only here and there, but every place where people are gathered in your name. May you be there and may you be glorified. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this is a well-known parable that we're looking at this morning. And we can readily grasp its meaning. But once we've examined the story this morning, I want to dig a little deeper to understand why the message of this parable is so powerful. In particular, I want to examine what Jesus is saying to us about the nature of grace. So let's read the passage now, Luke chapter 18, and I'm going to read from verses 9 through verse 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we'll end our reading there at the end of verse 14. So, first, we want to set the context in which Jesus spoke this parable. At this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem for the last time. Though he will arrive in Jerusalem, go through the Passion Week, and be crucified. So he's teaching on various topics. He has just taught about prayer in the first part of Luke chapter 18, and one might think by extension that Jesus is in this parable also giving us instruction on prayer. And while it does teach us something about prayer, I think we'll see that there's something more fundamental at play in this parable, and this more fundamental issue is a good segue to... The the text which immediately follows in Luke, which is Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, because this very nice, admirable young man personifies the issue that Jesus deals with in our text this morning. So what's the fundamental issue at play here? Jesus is teaching about justification, That is, he's teaching about what is required to be right with God, what must happen in order for God to accept us. You see, at our very core, from our earliest days, we're searching for peace, a peace that eludes our best efforts to grasp it. You try to be good. You want to do what's right. You know you fail at times, but you also know that you're better than many other people that you know, and yet peace eludes you. Now, you may already be thinking, well, I know where to find peace. I know the gospel. Jesus died in the place of sinners like me so that I can be saved and be made right with God through faith in him. That's the gospel. Nice, nice. Tidy, succinct. But let me challenge you for a moment. Do you really understand the gospel? Do I really understand the gospel? Don't be so quick to say yes. The gospel is very simple. I just gave you a basic version in one sentence. And yet we could spend our entire lives studying what the scripture says about the gospel, and never come close to understanding all there is to know about it. So let's see what we can learn about the gospel this morning. Now, one unusual aspect about this parable is that Luke gives us a commentary on Jesus' purpose behind the parable. He tells us this right up front. He says in verse 9, he says, And he also told this parable, so that some people who trusted in themselves... That they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So he told the parable to people who trusted in their self righteousness. The other problem, viewing others with contempt, is really a symptom of that disease of self righteousness. Jesus uses the parable to illustrate this idea very powerfully. Now, Jesus seems to think that self righteousness is a bad thing, but what's so bad about it? Don't we want people to be good? Jesus wants us to understand how horrible self-righteousness really is and how important it is for us to leave it behind in favor of something that is infinitely greater. Jesus starts the parable by telling us that there were two men who went up to the temple to pray at the same time. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Now, you probably already understand enough about the Bible to know that his listeners would have immediately seen the Pharisee as the hero of the story and the tax collector as the villain. And while the Pharisee doesn't look all that great in the parable, we can safely assume that Jesus' listeners were shocked by his assessment at the end when he, views, when he tells his view of these two men. Well, the Pharisee prays first, and he prays in a manner that's common to the Pharisees. There's nothing particularly unusual about his prayer that that it would have stood out to Jesus' audience. So let's see what he says, verses 11 and 12. It says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. You know, Jesus gives us a hint that something's amiss when he describes the Pharisee as, quote, praying this to himself. Of course, that's not the point of prayer, is it? Prayer is communication with God. So the implication of Jesus' statement is that this man communicated only with himself and with those who were in the hearing of his voice this can be a particular struggle for us as well. We can easily forget that we are addressing the thrice holy creator of the universe and just thoughtlessly ramble off some words that we're expected to say. Real prayer is not a ritual. It is an act of worship. And may the Lord spare us from praying to ourselves or to impress other people. With it. Pharisee's prayer is supposedly one of thanksgiving. That's how he starts, right? Lord, I thank you. But what is he thankful for? He's thankful for his own self-righteousness. He's thankful that he's not like other people. Well, what kind of people? Well, he helpfully provides a list of those that he sees beneath him, in case God didn't know. He finishes his list with the lowest of the low. This tax collector who dared come into the temple and be in his presence. And after offering thanks for what he is not, he then informs the Lord of how righteous he is. And the gist of this is that he not only keeps the law, which of course would have been a given in this case, but he goes beyond it for extra credit. In the parable, we're talking about an unsaved man but let's be honest with ourselves. How often do you, professing believer, have similar sentiments in your own heart? How often do you take pride in getting it right? How often do you feel contempt for those who quite, are, aren't quite up to your standard of righteousness? May the Lord rebuke our pride. His prayer has no hint of mercy or compassion. It is devoid of anything resembling true thanksgiving and utterly lacking in humility. But other than that, it's great. (laughs) It's a great prayer. No, it's it's not. It's a mockery of everything that the Lord Jesus stands for. Well the focus then changes to the tax collector, whose story is told in a single verse whose prayer is uttered in a single sentence. Listen to it in in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. This man is humble and devoid of any hint of self-righteousness. He stands off by himself, he hangs his head in shame. He beats his chest in anguish. And he pleads with the Lord God for mercy. And in that request, he's not just asking for the Lord's pity. He's not asking the Lord to make him a better man, a man that would be better thought of by those around him. No, his appeal for mercy is more specific. See, the Greek word here translated be merciful is hilaskamai Its word is only used twice in the New Testament, and it means to propitiate, which is a big word in itself. That is, it means to take away wrath. That's what it means to propitiate. It, he's asking the Lord to take away the wrath he justly deserves for his sin. In other words, he's demonstrating true repentance. He calls himself simply the sinner, or a sinner in other translations. This man speaks as if there is no other sinner on the face of the earth, as if he and he alone is the sinner against the Lord, and he offers no defense of himself. He doesn't compare himself to anyone else, because at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. What matters is he has sinned against God. There's no self deprecating false humility. He saw a holy God and he saw his own sinful heart. Can you see how this picture differs from so many modern evangelistic approaches? This man wasn't talked into making a decision for Jesus, he didn't walk down an aisle on the last verse of an invitation hymn because he felt the social pressure. No, this man had been confronted squarely with his sin. Which, by the way, is exactly what Court did from this pulpit just last Sunday. And he does it on a routine basis. Because we need to hear it. We need to hear that truth. This man had been confronted with his sin, and his heart, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, responded with repentance and a plea for mercy. This man has come to genuine faith. Now, having presented these two men, Jesus concludes with this assessment of the two men. Verse 14, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Why in the world would Jesus praise a sinner and condemn a righteous man? Well, to distinguish between them on their relative righteousness is a false premise. The man who appeared righteous isn't righteous in the least. He thought he was, but he wasn't. He was no more righteous than the man standing next to him. And the Lord doesn't see one unsaved person as more righteous then another unsaved person, what he sees are unrighteous people who need a savior. we need to see people that way as unrighteous people who need a savior not beneath us but just like us, except they need the Savior they need the Lord Jesus Christ. Well Jesus took the truth to everyone, regardless of how righteous or not, they appeared to be. This is part of the scandal of his ministry. The Pharisees didn't get it. They said, he hangs with tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't he know? Well, of course he knew. But they were sinners who needed salvation. And what did he say to them? It's not those who are well who need the doctor, it's those who are sick. But the irony in that was that the Pharisees didn't realize they were every bit as sick as the people that they looked down on. He went to the tax collectors and prostitutes, people no one else thought were worthy of God. Well, even after we're saved, we have to remember we're still unrighteous people who are saved by grace, not relatively righteous people who are more deserving of grace than others. May the Lord deliver us from thinking of ourselves more righteous, more deserving than unbelievers, or from thinking of ourselves more righteous than our fellow believers. For those of us who are believers, we are what we are purely by the grace of God. All right, so that's, that's the parable. But now let's, let's talk about how this applies to us and trying to unpack some meaning here. And and with that, I want to turn the spotlight on grace. You know, a few months ago, I listened to a series of messages by Pastor Mark Webb. He ministers down in Olive Branch, Mississippi. And in total, this series is about 14 hours long. And it focuses primarily on how we're to understand grace and I found it striking, and I've been rolling it over in my mind ever since. And a fair bit of what I'm about to say this morning is inspired by him, so I wanted to give credit where credit is due. And no, I don't plan on speaking for 14 hours. Two hours should cover it just fine. <laughs> oh, they thought I was joking. Okay, okay. so, so what is grace? What is Grace. We define grace as unmerited favor, receiving something that you do not deserve, bestowing reward without regard to merit. In the biblical context, grace is God freely bestowing forgiveness, eternal life, and other blessings on sinners who deserve only death, and he does so at the greatest cost imaginable. Grace is what you receive when you repent of your sins and put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for forgiveness. It is a gift bestowed freely by God to individual sinners. It is a personal transaction between a sinner and God. And God bestows grace to individual sinners when they come to faith in Christ. Grace is the one and only way sinners can be saved. This has been true since the fall. Salvation has always been by grace through faith alone. And grace is the one thing in life that sounds too good to be true, yet it actually is true. Now, most likely, you already knew everything that I just said about grace. And those of you who have received it rejoice in it in the same way I do. It's a glorious thing. So what more is there to say? Well, a whole lot, it turns out. We may describe grace as a medicine. We're born into this world with the disease of sin. It's a fatal disease with only one cure. When grace is applied to our diseased hearts, we're healed and raised to new life. We can describe grace as a gift. We're born into this world with no money, and yet we're incurring debt the debt of our own sin. We have no means to pay back this enormous debt, but grace pays all of our debts and sets us free from prison. Grace is those things. But thinking of grace solely in that way, as the solution to what ails us, leaves us far short of understanding what grace really is. Grace is more than medicine for sin-sick souls. Grace is more than a gift for the poor and needy. Grace is an entirely new perspective on life. Grace is a worldview. It is a way of life. So let's explore this idea a bit. The idea of grace is a way of life. You see, this world is the kingdom of Satan. And everyone is born into this world as a natural-born citizen. Of the kingdom of Satan. That's you and me. And like all kingdoms, the kingdom of Satan has a culture. Now, you know what culture is. Culture is a set of established norms that are practiced by certain groups of people. Jonathan talked about this a few weeks ago, and if you didn't hear it, I would encourage you to listen to that message. He reminded us that every nation has a unique culture, ethnic groups, Geographic regions, even families, have their own distinct cultural elements, things that characterize them and make them unique. Where well, the kingdom of Satan has its own culture, and there are many distinctives that we could pull out of that. It's a culture of death, it's a culture of lies. But today, I want to zero in on a very important element of the world's culture. And this element of the culture is best described by Satan himself. So turn with me to the book of Job. The book of Job, chapter 2. If you're familiar with the story of Job, you know that chapter 1 and 2 really sets the background for what happens. It's the setup for the whole rest of the book. And in, in chapter 1 and 2, we see Satan talking with God about Job. And after Satan has taken all that Job had, and Job has maintained his integrity through all of that, Satan appears before the Lord a second time in chapter 2. And I'm going to read just verses 3 and 4 of Job chapter 2. The Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth.'" A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. There it is, Satan's mantra skin for skin. Every man looks out for himself and expects to get what he deserves. I'll care for other people as much as I can, but when my own skin is on the line, nobody matters but me. I'm looking out for number one, and I'm going to make sure that I get what I deserve. How well that describes the culture of the world in which we live, the kingdom of Satan. Lawyers have a term for this concept. Quid pro quo, which translated means this for that, or something for something. Another way to describe it is the merit system. I operate in the system, and I expect to get what I deserve. And if I don't, I will act in my own interest to make sure that I do get what I deserve. And of course, now, it's okay if I get more than I deserve, but... I don't want someone else getting more and me getting less than I think I deserve. That's just the way it works. Now, I've spoken about this in negative terms. But to be fair, our world couldn't function without skin for skin, without quid pro quo. I hire you to paint my fence for $200. That's quid pro quo. If either party fails to hold up their end of the bargain, the other party is right to demand a correction. If there was no such concept as quid pro quo in a sinful world, we'd have chaos. We wouldn't know what to do. Here's the point. Skin for skin is a fundamental part of the culture of Satan's kingdom. You and I grew up with it, and we live by it every single day of our lives. It's as natural as breathing. Well, if skin for skin works, what's the problem? Well, the problem with living skin for skin is that it, it's the way of death. You can live quid pro quo with other people, but when you stand before a God, you have no quid to offer for his quo. When all you have is your own merit to offer, you'll find your merit only earns you one thing, Eternal damnation, because that's exactly what your merit deserves. Well, just as the kingdom of Satan has its own unique culture, so the kingdom of God has a culture as well. And again, there are many cultural elements to the kingdom of God on which we could focus, but let's focus on one. And interestingly enough, the Lord God gives it to us in the very same passage that I just read from Job. Remember what the Lord said right before Satan said skin for skin. He said this, he said, And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. The key statement there is without cause. The Hebrew word for that is hinam. And hinam means without a cause or for no reason. Perhaps I should teach this word to my children because that idea often expresses what they say to me when they're quizzed about their actions. I I can see it now, right? Josiah, why did you shave that cat? Hinam, no good reason. (laughs) It happens all the time, right? No good reason. But to be clear, God had a reason for afflicting Job. God never does anything for no reason at all. What he means by the statement is this. He afflicted Job for no cause found in Job. No cause found in Job. It wasn't due to Job's merit or lack of merit that the Lord had afflicted him. No, the Lord had another reason entirely. One that's never really explained to Job and really only partially explained to us. But it didn't have to do with Job's personal merit. Now, this example in Job is a negative one. But the Lord also blesses people, Hinam, for no cause in themselves. He blesses people who don't deserve it simply because He chooses to. That's how He operates. This is a major cultural element of the kingdom of God. And we have a term for it. We call it grace. call it grace. So here we have, in Job 2, God and Satan both expressing key elements of the cultures of their respective kingdoms. The kingdom of Satan operates skin for skin. The kingdom of God operates on grace. And those two ideas those two cultures couldn't possibly be any more different. They're like oil and water, never to mix. Now, the Apostle Paul is clear. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are switching kingdoms. See Colossians 13, for example. We are renouncing our citizenship in the kingdom of Satan. We are... And and this is the kingdom where we're natural-born citizens. We are renouncing that citizenship, and we are petitioning the Lord for entry into his kingdom, the kingdom of God. It is to this kingdom that we pledge ourselves when we come to faith in Christ. This is why the idea of accepting Jesus as Savior and not Lord is not true. It has no basis in Scripture. You don't come to a king and ask him to grant you citizenship in the kingdom without first bowing the knee to that king and recognizing his authority. No, first we come and we bow the knee to the king and then we make the request, allow me into your kingdom. You know, When a person emigrates from one nation to another, they adapt to the culture of their new nation. As Jonathan said the other day, that doesn't mean you lose your individuality, the things that make you uniquely you. No, but in your own unique way, you take on the culture of your new kingdom. You can't really function in God's kingdom unless you adopt his culture. When you renounce the kingdom of Satan, you renounce its culture too, and you embrace the culture of the kingdom of God individual Christians are as unique as snowflakes, and yet we share a common culture, and that common culture is a culture of grace. So what I just said is really what I call the the big idea of this message. It is my application of this passage, except that the application needs a lot of application itself. I, I haven't really brought this home to you and to me yet. But, but I needed to get this basic idea across of this contrast of the cultures between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And I think this idea of the kingdom of God being a culture of grace has real implications for us. I'm not saying anything new or revolutionary. I'm just suggesting that you consider a particular perspective on the kingdom of God. But for me personally, it's been a really helpful perspective You know, we could spend a very long time considering what it means to be a part of this kingdom, what it means to come to faith in Christ and walk with him, Uh, but time fails us. Uh, So let's briefly consider one thing to close. If you're walking with God, you're expected to act like it. Just as God extends grace to you every day, you're expected to extend grace to everyone around you. And extending grace means more than just being nice to someone who doesn't deserve it. It means loving them, even when it costs you something. That's what was so wrong about the Pharisee in this parable. He not only thought he merited right standing with God, which was bad enough, but he also believed that he was better than other people. He needn't be concerned about them because they were beneath him. They weren't worth his time. He was unwilling to extend grace to others because he knew nothing of grace himself. When you roll this idea over in your mind, it adds a new perspective on so many passages describing the Christian life. Genuine believers reflect the culture of their kingdom and their king. Think, for example, Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? To Paul, such a suggestion was ludicrous because continuing in sin means practicing the culture of this world. And it calls into the question whether or not you're even a genuine believer. Genuine believers act like it. You know, faithful preachers often wrestle to find the proper balance in their messages. And in particular, a balance between law and grace. So the reasoning goes that if I preach too much grace, meaning free forgiveness of sins... People's sinful hearts will be emboldened to continue walking in sin while professing Christ. Court talked about this last week. It's a huge problem in our day. Churches are filled with people professing Christ but living as they please while they claim free grace. And sadly, unfaithful preachers encourage that by preaching a cheap grace that never offends And never brings the law to bear. But the faithful preacher says, no, I must preach law so that people understand they cannot sin freely without consequence. And that's absolutely right. But there's a limit. Preach too much law and you laden genuine believers with so much guilt over their sin that it drives them to depression. All law and no grace sucks all the oxygen out of the room. It suffocates people because it takes away their hope. So the faithful preacher is always striving to find the right balance, the right amount of law and the right amount of grace to convey the truth of God. But here's the thing, and this has been so very helpful in my own thinking. Such language might make you think that law and grace are somehow enemies that they somehow stand opposed to one another. Except that's not the teaching of Scripture. Yes, it is true that later in Romans 6, Paul says that we are not under law but under grace. But here's how I think that statement is best understood. And I'll keep using kingdom language here. By saying that we're not under law but under grace, he is saying that we have moved from the kingdom where law is a condemning force, that is Satan's kingdom, to the kingdom where grace is a sanctifying force. Let me say that again. We have moved from the kingdom where law is a condemning force to the kingdom where grace is a sanctifying force. See, grace isn't just a forgiving force. It is. But it isn't just a forgiving force. It is a sanctifying force. Paul never meant to say that where you have grace, there is no law. Remember Jeremiah 31 from three weeks ago? God says, under the new covenant, I will write my laws on their hearts. Well, what God is describing is an act of grace. It is an act of grace to write his laws on the hearts of his people. For what purpose? So that we should walk in them. Some people think they've arrived when they can sin without remorse because they know Christ's free grace is poured out on them for their forgiveness. That's nonsense. Sinning without remorse is not a trait of someone immersed in free grace. Not at all. A person genuinely immersed in grace hates his sin Because it is antithetical to his culture, it's treason against his king. There's so much more that could be said. I urge you to think deeply on this topic. Stop thinking of grace as the medicine that's on your shelf that you pull off and apply it every time you sin and then you put it back. No, grace is what you live every single day. It's your culture if you're a servant of Christ, and if it's not your culture... You better be asking yourself some serious questions about whether you're really his. Well, I must stop here. Uh, I opened the treasure chest and I pulled out just a couple of nuggets to look at it, but that must suffice for today. But I would urge you in the moments after this message, look deep in your heart and don't let it go until you know that you're his. You know that you're in the kingdom of God. And if you belong to the kingdom of God, take a moment and bask in the richness of this truth. It is beyond description. Praise the Lord for the glory of his grace.